Welcome back. Tuesday, November 10th, 2020, as we head into our second hour. I read this piece in Newsweek, current issue of Newsweek, the day I learned I was white from a friend and a voice you may know. He guest hosts uh, different shows across our platforms. Here is the vice president of content at Salem Media Group, host of Our American Stories and a Newsweek columnist. He's Lee Habib. It's the piece I have been looking for for such a very long time. Lee Habib, the moment I read it the mo- was the moment I needed you on this show. Thank you for writing it, and thanks for coming back on. Well, you know, Seth, I, I've been a Lebanese-Italian guy all my life, and to learn what I learned recently from a buddy of mine in Seattle, I actually found quite amusing. I mean, it doesn't actually anger uh, we Lebanese and Italians because we're so damn happy to be here <laughs> and so grateful. Um, so these flights of, of being called, quote, white, I mean, I've been called so many worse things than white, but I wanted to know why and what was going on. And so I figured I'd write a piece about, well, uh, immigrants I know who w- w- would not be included in the, the current status of people of color and are actually being excluded by a lot of these diversity and training sessions around the country. It's it's a fascinating um, perspective that you bring to it, Lee, and there's so many levels to this. Um, Let me start with something you just said, Lebanese and Italian uh, heritage. I wonder, someone somewhere, somewhere exists, maybe you've seen it, what immigrant groups are most proud to be American? It's the first time I ever thought about that question. When, when you just said what you did, because I happen to know a lot of Lebanese Americans or Americans of Lebanese descent, they happen to be, as far as I know, maybe second or first to the second of Italians who are the most who are the most proud to be American. It's an interesting thing. We should look for that study. I, I bet it will show Lebanese Americans at the very top of that list. Well, look, I, I rarely found griping Lebanese or griping Italians. We're too busy eating. Uh, enjoying life, doing business, and helping our family and friends. And uh, it's been easier to do here than in our home country. I mean, right now in Beirut, I would urge anyone to go and do a, a search on what the poverty rate is like in this once great city. That explosion that happened, there are accidents like this that happen regularly. It's a great city now destabilized by, by a government that no longer functions, uh, proxies of the land ruining the place. Um, and my grandfather on the Italian side escaped as Mussolini was consolidating power. Yep. So my grandparents were wives, and they did hard things to come here. And they faced discrimination. I, I grew up the only Arab kid in a town of 20,000. I heard the usual silly, mean jokes about my ethnic heritage. But, you know, my parents at the time were really interesting. Um, they, they basically didn't organize the world around my sensitivity. Right. I couldn't call the principal's office. My mom would say something interesting, Seth. She would say, why don't you get to know them? Because mm. she was a Catholic. Mm. And to her mind, they just didn't know. They don't know who you are. I had lunch with them. And I did. And more often than not, I became friends with these people. Turns out that, that now that, that's the huge next point to all of this. Because it turns out what you just described used to have a word we kind of all gelled to, and that word was integration. And that is what has changed so much in the last 20, 25, 30 years here in American culture, hasn't it? The, 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 the concept and notion of integration has become one of more and more separatism. That's the divide that we face now, isn't it? Part of it, Lee? Well, I think it's part of it, but I think it's esoteric, and I think it's in the minds of progressives on campuses. Because look around. The next time you meet somebody, anybody, Seth, 
ask them where their people are from, the husband's side and the wife's side. And you think about my heritage. I'm Lebanese and Italian and a little bit Swiss German. My wife is Irish. She's, she's, uh, she's Canadian. She's part American Indian, and she's part Viking and part French. And so my daughter is all of those things. And the way we live and love and marry and make families in this country, look, my grandparents weren't thrilled that my parents, that the Lebanese married the Italian and the Italian married the Lebanese until they had kids. And once they were grandkids, all scores were settled. Mm-hmm. And I think that's everybody's experience. I don't want to judge my grandparents out of their historical context. They knew what they knew. But boy, did they love their Lebanese, Italian grandkids. The big problem here, and there's so much to your piece, I, I want to delve into different parts of it. But the big problem here, I think, or one of the big problems here, Lee, is what you just said in describing uh, your daughter and uh, the, the various heritages that she descends from. Because I'm listening to you recite all those various uh, nationalities, and I'm saying in a better t- I'm saying to myself, in a better time, we just would have called that American. You have this line in your piece, we, we dark-skinned immigrants didn't come here to change America, we came here to have America change us. That's not the ethos anymore here much, is it? No, it's not, and, it, and it's sad. So I think how we're actually living as opposed to how we're experiencing America through the media are very different things. And how we're experiencing it through the college faculty. Okay. I actually think there's a huge disjoint. When I walk around in every walk of life, I know that these things are actually happening. It's the far-left progressives, a, a rabble, a, 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 an ugly rabble, of, of an horde, by the way. Because it's a large number of campus folks and high school teachers and, and minions in, 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 in diversity training seminars trying to impose this, this orthodoxy on a people I don't think necessarily inclined to want it and not feeling comfortable. My pal told me that in Seattle, when they did this training, a lot of Indian Americans wanted nothing to do with being kicked out of the brown room, the people of color room, and being thrown into the white room. They thought it was absurd, and they weren't too happy about it. Because they're not white Indian Americans, but they're the highest income earners per capita in America by far, far surpassing white people. Well, you know what you just told me? You just told me, and you you write about this in your piece in Newsweek, you just told me this is all part of the Marxist dialectic because their determination of who they are has nothing to do with heritage or what they believe, but has to do with income. It does. And I also think that this myth that white supremacy is holding back ethnic immigrants and dark-skinned immigrants from doing well is the reason they throw us into the white room, right? Because... We do do well. They tell, they tell us we sold out and adopted the white man's way of thinking. They say we've adopted the oppressor's way of thinking. We've adopted our, and embraced capitalism. We've adopted and embraced assimilation. We've adopted and embraced, well, America itself. And this is a crime against the orthodoxy. It's a heresy. And it's why I was excommunicated, it turned out, from this, uh, from this people of color group, which I, of course, should belong Meanwhile, white people are saying that they identify with being dark-skinned and thus can put themselves in that room. Look, in the end, it's really goofy, uh, actually. The real premise I was trying to get at, at this piece, I actually want to try and coax and urge my white friends not to fall for this rubbish. Because what my mom and dad were really teaching me is that if I saw for the one or two white races, what I would miss was all the wonderful white people who were not just 
good to me and decent to me. They were actually rooting for me, Seth, because I was different. They were wondering if everything was okay. When they heard a slight, they would run over and see if I was okay, to which I would always tell them, look, my parents taught me that these are the least of my problems, right? And they always admired that. And so what I really wanted to get at in this piece is the idea that, that there is such a thing as a white supremacist nation, and its name is America. And, and in the piece, I also point out that 50% of the Jews in the world live in this country, and they know a little something about white supremacy. Why the heck would they choose to live here if it was a white supremacist nation? And why are they thriving? Because they're number, in per capita, they're number two in per capita income. And parts of immigrants from Africa do much better here than the average white or even Jewish Americans, and they come here in the millions. Why would they flee to such a white supremacist and oppressive country? That question has well, to I mean, be asked. They have the yeah. Internet, right? And they talk to each other on the phone. Yeah. If this place was such a horrible place, they wouldn't call their friends back home and say, come, stay away, and we're fleeing because these cops are horrible. By the way, people in Africa, they know what it means to have a military they're afraid of, right? Uh-huh. Yes. Um, I have a friend from Uganda who lived there when Idi Amin lived there and then lived after, which was even worse. And they said the military came in and raped our families and stole our stuff. Mm-hmm. But when people say the cops here, I'm not saying there aren't bad cops. There are. But the idea that cops running around raiding and pillaging people of color is an obscenity. I mean, it's not just off-base. It's so off-base that it's worse than a lie. It's actually an obscenity that I think we've all got to challenge. But with this data, with these facts, with these arguments about how well ethnic immigrants are doing in this country, and if, if white supremacy and racism were the stumbling block, then why are Nigerians and Kenyans right, right. knocking the ball off the cover right, here? Right, right. Do you have time for one more segment, or do you have to run? No, I have time. Happy to do it. Excellent. Lee Habib is our guest. He's a vice president at Salem and the host of Our American Stories. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It's a delight to have Lee Habib with us. Uh, You've heard him as a guest host on many of these shows. He's also the host of Our American Stories. You want to check that out at Our American Network, ouramericannetwork.org. Lee, in your Newsweek piece, it's a great piece, folks, just out, the day I learned I was white. In in um, In your Newsweek piece, you said this session, this racial and social justice initiative session, where they read you out of your, I suppose, is it fair to say dark-skinned or Arabic culture? Is that is, where they read you out of it? Uh, the, yeah. It ends with instructions for white people to challenge right, white friends for their participation in, quote, our white supremacist culture, close quote. Now, you said you wrote this piece because you don't want, I guess, people that look like me to back down. Uh, from 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 this 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 new teaching, this new racialization of America uh, ethic, but when we are taught that we are part of a supremacist culture and participate in it by mere dint of the color of our skin, and even you are 
regardless of the color of your skin. I'm not pressured by this. You're not. But a lot of people are. It's it's hard to push back against this when you're told you're you're a, you're a, you're you're basically a member of the KKK merely by being born with the color of the skin that you are. It's hard to push back against that. Well, I mean, that's why I gave the facts, right? I mean, I, I, I talked about this, this session. And by the way, they informed white participants that objectivity, individualism and comfort are vestiges of internalized racial oppression. They also told the, the, the folks who worked in the city of Seattle and some of these other businesses in Seattle, they had to work on undoing their own whiteness. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they were not only guilty of being white, they had to undo their whiteness. So I said, what, am I white or am I undoing my whiteness? Mm-hmm. And by the way, let me give you some data, because if it's a white supremacist country, I want people to be able to go. All they have to do is put net worth per capita income of ethnic Americans, and it'll pop up, and it's just the Census Bureau from 2018. And Seth, if we're a white supremacist nation, we want to ask people, why do Indian Americans top the list? Mm -hmm. Why is Taiwanese number two, Filipinos number five, Chinese number seven, Singaporeans number nine, Pakistani 16, Iranians 22, Lebanese 25, Italian 32, and Greek Americans 35, when the Swiss are 30, the Polish are 36, the Swedes are 38, <laughs> the Germans are 53, and the French are 62. I mean, if these white supremacists are so powerful, they're really failing at their job. That, that's one of the best things I've ever heard over, the, over these airwaves, Lee. You have to sing that from the rooftops. You have to sing it from the rooftops. Everyone needs to be made aware of this. They aren't. They don't know this because they're told not to think this way. Yep. I have a lot of Cuban friends. I grew up in a neighborhood in northern New Jersey right near an almost entirely Cuban uh, ethnic enclave. Okay. And what infuriated them was being called Latino. They said, we're Cuban. Yeah. And we do well here because we love the country, and we love our Puerto Rican friends, but they're not doing nearly as well. right? And so how do we explain the disparities between and amongst groups in this country? Because even among Asians, Indian Americans are knocking the ball off the cover, but Sri Lankans aren't doing as well, Malaysians aren't doing as well. We know this between European countries. Some do better than others. Look, Ethnic America, a great book by Thomas Sowell, got at the core part of the problem or the solution, which is you bring your culture with you. Mm-hmm. You bring how you view your habits, your work habits, education, what you study, why you study, what sex, what success means. Do you have faith? Do you believe in divorce? Do these ethnic groups have fatherlessness, high fatherlessness rates? So many things go into disparities and discrepancies between groups. The last thing that's dispositive is the color of our skin. Right. It has almost no correlative power. Right, right. This notion, it's, it's the crudest of things, Lee, really, that they're teaching you in these seminars that you wrote about. I noticed it over the summer, I think in July. Remember when the Smithsonian's Museum of African American, um, uh, the African American Culture Museum of the Smithsonian put out a chart? On whiteness, they had a whiteness project. It was one of the most crude things I'd ever seen. Uh, You might, it was almost like a Jeff Foxworthy uh, joke. You might just be white if you work before play. That was on the chart. That was an indication that you're white, that you work before play, or that Christianity is the norm. If Christianity is the norm in your household, you might just be white. I had to stop and think a moment about what a surprise that might be to Al Sharpton and Martin Luther King. But that's how crude they are, right? 
Or, or well, you know what? Or think about the Nigerians, Kenyans, and Ugandans who are coming here. Yes. Christianity yes. is exploding yes. in Africa. It's yes. exploding in yes. China. Yes. It's, a, it's an international religion. These idiots. Uh, yeah, Martin Luther King would be really surprised to find out he's white. Yeah. Right? right. He worked before he played. Yeah. He saw his vocation as slightly more important than playing. Yeah. Yeah. Lee, is is it is it on the precipice of, of, of getting worse or getting better um, in this country based on, I guess one would say, based on what we witnessed over the summer with the riots and perhaps this uh, this election, which is, in my mind, I'm not asking you to voice an opinion, in my mind, still under dispute. Uh, is it going to get worse or going to get better, this, this re-racialization of America? Oh, I think it's going to get I think it's going to get better in terms of um, it'll it'll run out of its own steam. Look, when Martina Navratilova, the first woman to come out in sports and, and, and be a gay person and be a lesbian and had great courage doing it, was kicked out of the LGBTQ movement because she says basically that a man should not be able should not be able to play women's tennis. Right. And now she's called a bigot. Yeah. Means that their purity tests and these charts and graphs they put together yeah. are such rubbish. And by the way, I'm already watching my 15 year old daughter and her friends say things like, "Oh, I'm so triggered." See, they think this is rubbish. Like, oh, Jeff, oh you mean she says it sarcastically? You mean she's she's they making? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, say, yeah. they mm-hmm. think it's a joke. Because my daughter was dating an African-American kid in her school, and one day he texted her and said, hey, Black Lives Matter, are you with us or against us? Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm dating you, mm-hmm. and I think the organization is a Marxist organization. Mm-hmm. And then he said, but you're silent with simplicity. And she went, I wasn't silent. I said, I'm dating you, <laughs> and I'm not playing this game. And Look, it's a game. It's a dumb game. People are afraid to speak up against it. But we should never confuse acquiescence with agreement. Good. And I think there'll be a tipping point soon. And if you remember, in 1984 or five, there was this show called Family Ties. I remember. And the hippie father was the butt of all the jokes. Yep. And the conservative kid, like all of us, were rebutting the generation. Never forget the American people's capacity for the children to make fun or the young people to make fun of the generation ahead of them and repudiate their silly thinking. And the Woodstock generation was sent up in family in that in that great uh, in that great show. Yeah. And Michael Keaton was always the one in the suit with the Reagan posters yeah. saying, "Dad, I want to make a living." Yeah, right. Nice, nice. Lee, you're a treasure, uh, folks. Uh, if you want more from Lee Habib, you can uh, hear him at Our American Stories, ouramericannetwork.org. But do read, please, his Newsweek piece. Lee, Habib, good friend. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for this. Thank you, sir. We'll talk to you you soon. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I want to tell you about Balance of Nature. It is the single most effective whole food supplement on the market. I take it every single day. I was talking to a friend today who said she was getting that cold you get and sometimes get when the seasons change. I get it four times a year. Haven't gotten it once for the past year since I've been taking Balance of Nature. It's just chock full of great, potent, healthy stuff. Thousands, tens of thousands of vital nutrients from 100% whole food plants. You take it just once a day. And they have a great deal right now offering free shipping and 35% off 
any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Give Balance of Nature a call at 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Well, this Biden um, uh, effort, Joe Biden effort to bring all Americans together and to start healing the nation, which is what he spoke about Saturday night, lasted maybe three days, not even. At his press conference today, this wasn't in response to a question. This was in his opening comments. He was talking about the case on the Affordable Health Care Act, Obamacare, in front of the Supreme Court today. Here's what he said. Quote, this case represents the latest attempt by the far-right ideologues to do what they have repeatedly failed to do for a long time, meaning overturning legislative, overturning Obamacare. This case represents the latest attempt by the far-right ideologues to do what they have repeatedly failed to do for a long time. So I think a little bit about Obamacare, the Affordable Health Care Act. It got not a single Republican vote. Republicans probably by a 90% margin or more to this day, oppose it. And he calls you far-right ideologues. Is that coming together? Is that healing? Is that an effort to see our fellow partisans as not Republicans and Democrats, but just Americans, calling Republicans far-right ideologues? Far-right ideologues. Because they have a different opinion about what the Obama-Biden administration did with health care. Far-right ideologues. So much for the healing. So This is Joe Biden, by the way. This is what he does. He's able to give a speech that is high and mighty and oh so sincere and so platitudinous on one day and on the next say something like this. Or say Mitt Romney's going to put black people back in chains, all the while condemning, you know, the non the um, the lack of bipartisanship, all along condemning that we can't all get along anymore like we used to in the good old days. The good old days. Well, I remember the good old days was when you were passing a massive piece of legislation, maybe the biggest piece of legislation in a generation affecting a fifth of the economy. You tried to get bipartisan buy-in. They made no effort to. That's why not a single Republican voted for it. Not one. And so we are all far-right ideologues. You know what's interesting about that is there were several, a lot of Democrats who voted against Obamacare. There was a bipartisan, there was a bipartisan approach to Obamacare, but because Democrats were against it, the bipartisanship was against it. Was against it. I wonder if those Democrats are far-right ideologues. All right. We're not deplorables anymore, I suppose. We're not deplorables. We are um, far-right ideologues. You put us in that category, and then you wonder why we think you may be playing shenanigans with something like an election. When you think of us as not worthy of governing, as not worthy of having a claim to the consent to be a part and parcel of the consent of the governed, and the governor, and the governing, and you dismiss us all as far-right ideologues when your troops on the streets are marching and calling us Hitlers and fascists, sowers of division and hate, 
in Michelle Obama's phrase Saturday. You wonder why we might think you might just have motive. Might just have motive to do anything you can to keep us from power. Did anyone say, did anyone ever say that Obamacare was sponsored by far-left ideologues, by the way? That's not a phrase I remember. That was not in the coin of the realm, only the opposition to it. I'm Seth Liebson. David, Naomi, don't go away, and there's room for more. 602-5080-960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. If you're thinking about selling your home, if you're in the midst of selling it and it's not going as quickly or as well as you wanted, call my friend James Wexler of JMG Real Estate. He guarantees to sell your home at market value or he will pay you the difference. He can also make you an upfront guaranteed offer within 24 hours of you reaching out to him. The Phoenix Business Journal ranks James the number one selling individual agent in Arizona. 480-386-0711 is his phone number. You can visit him online at jameswexler.com. That's James Wexler, W-E-X-L-E-R.com. Naomi is in Mesa. Naomi, thank you for your patience. Sure. Thanks for taking my call, Seth. Of course. I just am at a point where I want to know what's next. Where do we go from here? Well, <laughs> we all do. <coughs> we all do. I'll tell you what I think we have uh, an immediate task and a long-term task. The immediate task is to fight like hell for Georgia. Georgia matters a lot. Those two Senate races are really important. If you have friends Mm -hmm. there who can volunteer or know people or if you can donate money to either the Purdue or Loeffler campaigns, I think we have to do everything we can to save the Senate. That's the immediate task. The long-term task, Naomi, is um, something I've been talking about for a long time, and it's not going to be overnight. It's going to be long-term. If we want to um, start getting rid of the absurdities and the ridiculousnesses of the left that has now enraptured and captured the Democratic Party, we have to work in the education system. We have to run for school board. We have to get on curriculum committees. We have to teach children the importance of the First Amendment and the Constitution. The left has done an amazingly good job of rewriting and redoing and undoing all of that learning from about uh, the birth of uh, the common school, perhaps going back to the Northwest Ordinance even, 1787, Mm -hmm. until about 30 years ago. That's where the fight is, and it's going to be hard and long, but we got to get there or we are doomed, I think. What do you think? Well, thanks. Um, I am just a young mom, and I'm scared. I'm scared for my kids, and I want to know what is, you know, what I can be doing. And so well, that helps if me. You can't, and I, if you can't run for school board, maybe you know someone who can, and you can encourage yeah. them. They're not the sexiest of races in the sense of they get a lot of attention. But that's how the left got us in the schools. That's how they got to it. They did it under under our noses and under the radar. Um, and we've got to get back there. We have got to get back into the schools and the classrooms and, as I say, in the textbook committees and the curriculum committees. It's an amazing thing what a lot of parents, maybe you're one of them, have noticed that was the 
bill of fare for their teacher for their children's education over the last eight months or so. Quite jaw dropping and eyebrow raising to a lot of parents. Um, they had heard or read that it wasn't very good, but they were amazed to see how truly bad it was. And I think, you know, we're going to see probably a lot more homeschooling uh, as a result going forward. And right. it's a great option if you can do it. I think, you know, um, every every um, every parent is a teacher, a child's indispensable, mm-hmm. most indispensable teacher. Um, but not everyone can do it. And right. 80%, really more close to 90% of the rest of American children will be in public schools. A friend of mine says, okay. well, we got to do school choice. It's a help, but, you know, the school choice is only as good as any of those private schools. And i got to tell you, not a lot of them are much better, and a lot of them are right. much worse. Um, you know, the free market uh, can be, you know, a good selling good things, and it can be selling bad things. You know, what if the free market is a wet market in Wuhan? Naomi, uh, we mm-hmm. have got to work on what 90% of our children get every day for 12 years. That's the long-term project. I wish we would go there. That's my. Absolutely. That's what I think. What... Thank you so much. I appreciate well, that. Well, you bet. You bet. And in the meantime, you know, uh, wh- whether you are homeschooling or not, teach your children well still abides. Last time I looked. And you can, you know, you can always supplement. You can always read exciting mm-hmm. and interesting American history and civics with them at night. There are good American history books out there. And, Absolutely. And they show the American story for what it truly is, which is maybe the second greatest story ever told. It's a great, right. great story. That's, you know, that's part of the problem with the textbooks. When they aren't tendentious and ideological, they've taken this great story and made it dull and uninteresting so that children don't want to see it. And then we get mm-hmm. older, you know, and we see a Showtime series on the Adams Family or a David McCulloch book. And we say, whoa, this is interesting, great stuff. Right? right? We want right, this absolutely. stuff. Well, think about giving that to your kids. You know, don't wait till you're 30, right? right? I will, for sure. Thank you. Naomi, God bless you. Thank you very much. Thank- absolutely. Call again. David in Scottsdale. Hi, David. Hi, Seth. How are you today? I'm well, sir. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Very good. Hey, I have a question and a comment, if time permits. Sir. So, do you. Seth, or any of the listeners or callers know where we are with the Maricopa ballot count. Um, I, you know, Kelly Ward said something last week, said it was looking good for Trump, but I'm just curious. Well, I was uh, paying a little bit of attention to the statewide recounting, and I don't know specifically where the Maricopa is, but it's easy to go to if you go to the Maricopa County Recorder's Office, which I just haven't had time to do during this show. But their website will have the count. Er, uh, Joe Biden in the state is leading, last I looked, by about fourteen or 15,000 votes. And I think that's with 98% reporting, somewhere around the neighborhood of maybe sixty to 80,000 votes left to count, ballots left to count. That's the statewide. As for this drilling down into Maricopa, uh, I don't know. I can't do it off the top of my head. But if you go to the Maricopa County Recorder's Office, you can. No, I got it. No, seriously, I was just yeah. you know curious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but thank you, Seth. You bet. And um, by the way, that last uh, interview with Leah Beeb. Yeah. That was that was great. I knew I had that to have was, him on. I, I could you know, I could have listened to that for an hour. I, I could have kept going with him too. It's one of the most important <laughs> things he's saying here. 
Um, you know, this re-racialization of society is just so unbelievably sad. It's just such a reversal, such a reversal. Yeah, you know, you know I, I don't want to get sidetracked or distract from my next comment, but um, everyone I know who comes to America, I mean, obviously from the UK, um, they embrace America. They don't bring, a lot of people don't bring their baggage with them and want to and want to change it. We embrace America. I mean, America is a melting pot. It's not porridge. It's very exciting, and they and they come here for a reason, you know? Well, um, that was one of the things Lee wrote in his piece that I think, in large part, we've either started to lose or there is a vested interest in losing or changing, and that was the notion that um, that immigrants in large part used to come to America to become Americans, you know, that they used to come here to have America change them, not them change America. Of course, inevitably, every human being does, you know, affect some change on their country. That's what it means to have a democracy or even a Republican form of government. But supposedly there's something they're leaving that they don't like for something that they're leaving that for that they do supposedly and one of the tragedies is when it when you look at high school students when they start in ninth grade and they're immigrants they tell you they're american by the time they're in 12th grade they hyphenate themselves that's what our school system does i have to hit a break you're welcome to stay and follow up if you want when we come back i'll be right back Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, David in Scottsdale was holding on there. I think you had a follow-up, right, David? Welcome back. Hey, thanks, Seth. You bet. So the follow-up is this. So um, <clears throat> this this vague mainstream media, um, as you know, mainstream media is like the marketing arm of the Democrat Party, right? It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the, the communi- yeah, it's department. the communications department. Sure. Yeah, it's the advertising department. Yeah. So, and they're pushing this vague, you know, underlying message of social unrest or possible violence should something happen, you know, once the election is called. I've got to be honest, Seth. I mean, that's terrible. It's not good. I mean, you know, it's fear-mongering of, of disorder and violence on the streets. It's... Um, it's not good. I mean, it, it's as if we didn't already look like a banana republic over the last week. We now want to push that envelope even further to act even farther like that. Right. We are yeah. acting like a country or looking like a country we used to send aid to. I'm looking at a protest in Washington, D.C. right now, a pro Biden mm-hmm. protest, and they have Donald Trump's head on a pike bleeding from the face and his nose uh, built out like a pig's snout. Um, mm-hmm. As uh, Todd Herman says, are we all good with severed head parties in the streets of Washington, <laughs> D.C.? Are we all good with oh, that? Man. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, the violence, the violence and this, um, what would you call it? Homicidal ideation uh, uh, of, of the left. Um, it, it, it only exists 
on the left. I, I you know, this, the boarding up of businesses. Show me, show me, show me the violent protest. You know, we Republicans, a lot of us anyway, think we have been massively. You know what? A lot of us yeah. think that. And what's the worst thing we've done? You tell me. What's the worst thing we've done? Held a peaceful, literally peaceful protest here or there? Literally? Hired some attorneys here and there? Filed some (laughs) complaints in federal and state court here and there? You ever see anyone marching with a head of Joe Biden on a pike bleeding? With his nose built out like a pig snout? It's an incredibly sad thing to see. Joe Biden wants to keep telling us we're Americans. We're all Americans. We're not enemies. We're Americans. Well, don't tell us. Look on the streets of your supporters and tell them. Pipe your speeches into their megaphones. 